I'm Richard, and welcome to Esotorx's podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 31st, 2014. Join us this week as we talk with Anastasia Lokaitu Sidiris, urban planning professor and associate dean at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, about the sidewalks and other public spaces of Los Angeles, the challenges they face, and the promise they hold. We'll also visit with Anna Pahauschek, principal planner for the city of Orange, to discover how preservation became a core value in her city's public policy and some of the unexpected architectural gems that Orange holds. So stay tuned. Los Angeles. El Pueblo. Lotus Land. The City of Angels. The Day of the Locust. The Slide Area. Where all the fruits and nuts ended up when they turned the country on its ear. But you and I were born here. Don't mind a few oddballs in the mix. They add flavor. Growing up in Cheviot Hills, my compass pointed straight to 5th and Main. As a kid in Hollywood, I was forbidden to take the bus to the Central Library. But I did it anyway. Because you've got to start at the center to understand this confounding and fantastic city. Which makes nonsense of history and breaks all the rules. Rainer Banham said that. He taught us well. In the 1980s at UC Santa Cruz, now on our tours and in our time travel blogs, we're continuing the conversation. Raymond Chandler's Los Angeles and Charles Bukowski's The Birth of Noir, Route 66, The Lowdown on Downtown, The Real Black Dahlia. Positive public space, endangered landmarks, forgotten lore, memory maps, mysteries, murder, the allocation of resources, the hidden forces that shape public policy, Skid Row, Bunker Hill, preservation, restoration, redevelopment, it's a four-letter word, Los Angeles, you can't eat the sunshine, but you can drive around and take a long, hard look, and listen to the stories, and pass them on. Why are we doing this again? Because we love the place with a passion that goes beyond sense or reason. So did Rainer Banham. So we did. Now let's begin. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skid Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between Welcome, everyone. Thank you for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 31st, 2014. Our guests this week are Anastasia Lakaitu Sidiris. She is a professor of urban planning. She is an associate dean at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, and she's going to be talking to us about sidewalks and, well, side, sidewalks, ordinances around sidewalks, public policy, and reclaiming, uh, trying to get back some of, of what, what we call around here positive public space. We are also going to talk to Anna Pahoshak. She is a principal planner at the city of Orange. She is really great. She really, she's, she's the, the preservation person. Um, she's the one that, 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 that steers their course, and she's going to tell us about the history of preservation in the context of the public policy of Orange, because... Orange, this great, quaint little city, isn't really that quaint, but everyone identifies it as being quaint in 19th century, and that's because Anna and her department have done a great job making sure this core historic district, which is a national register, stays that way. So I'm really excited about this uh, entire podcast being devoted to preservation, public policy, and the feedback loop that creates public policy, which is which is one of my favorite topics. Kim, it's time to talk about the Pishka. The Pishka, as Richard likes to put it, is the digital tip jar. It's associated with this podcast, and if you enjoy listening, which we certainly hope that you do, you could certainly lend an ear and give some thought to perhaps throwing a little digital something into the tip jar. It helps us in our traveling funds as we go to places like Orange and talk to preservation people for you to listen to. Never obligatory, always appreciated. 
Thanks for your support. All right, Kim, let's get into closely watched trains. I'm going to take the lead on these. All right, so here we go. Thanks. Okay, so William Daly Books, which is a rare rare bookshop in Los Angeles, they've picked up some yearbooks from Los Angeles High School, 36, 37, and 38. 1938 is, of course, the year Charles Bukowski graduated. So there is, of course, signatures from Charles Bukowski inscriptions. He uh, writes, he inscribes things to his friend William Molinow, uh, better known to everyone in his fiction as, as Baldy. And uh, it, you, we, we have a, someone put a blo- nice blog post about it. It looks really great. Not going to buy it, um, but it looks really good. Where were we last year, Kim, when someone, we were somewhere a year or two ago and, and an assistant principal at Los Angeles High School. We met an assistant principal who's buying up all the old yearbooks. It was it was nice, and he, I think he paid nine hundred dollars for a nineteen thirty nine thirty eight yearbook with Bukowski in it. So it, it's it's they 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 go for a lot of money. It really sucks if you graduated that year and you're not Bukowski and you're trying to get your yearbook back. Okay, Kim, let's. Um, all right, we're gonna keep moving. All right, architects named Andre. Okay, there's an architect. His name is Andres. 20, 20, Andres Tuane. He is based out of Miami. Uh, grew up in Cuba. Interesting guy. This is germane to everything we've been talking about, especially today. He's talking about lean urbanism. Lean urbanism is um, a couple of things. His specific strain of lean urbanism is an insistence that cities cr- remove the red tape from implementing projects, and this is something that Anastasia has worked on and implemented successfully with the city of Los Angeles through street people. We talked about that two weeks ago, or last week. Talked about it very recently. Um, the notion, the notion, the program, it's not a notion, it is a full-fledged functioning program in the city of Los Angeles through the Department of Transportation. You can fill out a form online for unused parking space, traffic, island, Apply. Within six weeks, you'll get a yes or a no. If it's a yes, there's a there's a standard kit they send out. It goes up. Boom. You got yourself a foosball table. You got yourself an Adirondack chair. These are the parklets you're talking about, which, as we'll discover with today's interview, are just a slippery slope that's supposed to lead to something a lot more exciting. And I'm happy to hear that because the parklets are silly in my mind, but they're on their way to something else. Positive public space. All right, yeah, we're we're gonna get it, Kim. We're gonna okay. You know what? We're gonna we're we're gonna we're approaching the parklet problem really slowly because um, sideways, like you go. N- we're, 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 like we're 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 no really because because Anastasia has done some great work. It's a great program. We just have specific concerns about its implementation on Broadway. And, and we're it's it's implemented. Yeah, it's, we're, you know we're gonna get into all of that. So Andres. His his big his 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 the bee in his bonnet, which is correct, is that it's too hard to do things, and it's not so much that he wants. You know, I don't know how well written this summary of his talk was. I don't think it was that well written. It's a good talk, but the summary wasn't good. What what he's talking about is what the city of Los Angeles is doing, which is old buildings don't fit into new zoning laws, and so cities are built old parts of cities are rehabilitated very poorly through the building and safety with all these exceptions and exemptions and it's a nightmare and what the city of Los Angeles is doing is creating an entirely new toolkit to streamline people pumping new ideas into old buildings with these new codes and making it happen faster and more efficiently and cheaper and all that and so so this is another way of my saying we're, we're, we're on this we know what's going on, and we're, we're listening to you. So, Kim, let's talk about let's talk about Skid Row. A Politico magazine published an article last week about Skid Row. Uh, a good article. A couple things I didn't. The point of us talking about this is not per se the article, which is good. Which people should read. Which people should read, and it's interesting. I was unaware of this federal mandate that uh, outreach facilities. The missions, all these service agencies, everyone working in Skid Row has what a year, ninety days? What is it? 
It's they have like they, they have a window. In which yeah, they, kind they, of they have learn six months. Yeah, they have six months to get it together and cooperate, cooperate. or they're not. They're going to lose federal funding. So that's really serious. And we're going to go talk to Reverend Andy at the Union Rescue Mission about what this means. But the point of us bringing up this political art, Politico article on Skid Row is that it's really poorly covered in the news. It's a really confounding topic. I spent a lot of time last week just going through archives of newspapers, as many as I could, looking at issues around and reporting around Skid Row and going back to my notes about events we do down there and, and my discussions with Reverend Andy. And it's it's. I, I wish it were better covered. I wish the LA Times had a dedicated Skid Row reporter. It's certainly interesting enough and important enough. So, so Kim, uh, two weeks ago, an event at the Cecil. Uh, there was a notion of turning the entire 700-room facility into housing for uh, immediate housing for the homeless through a project, and it, it didn't. It didn't take off. It didn't get off the ground. Do you want to just sure? Um, so there's a group called Home for Good, and they're working with the United Way, and they've sort of uh, diverted a lot of the homeless funding in the last few years towards this organization that has the idea of getting people into transitional housing immediately, right off the street into housing before they get any uh, job training or therapeutic aid. It's really different from the model um, that Reverend Andy Bales at the Union Rescue Mission uses to get people into the mission and and go through this life transformation. So we're, of course, most familiar with the URM just because we do all this work with their archive and the walking tours. Um, we're not in tight with any of the other missions, so I'm not saying this is definitely the way to help the homeless, but the, the people that we work with... Re Re Reverend Andy doesn't think it is. It's a major paradigm shift, which is causing a lot of dissent, which is why the notion of a federal mandate saying that agencies which operate completely contradictory to the other to the way other missions operate have to get along is so interesting because it's going to be really hard. Right, it'd be hard for home to good home for good to get along with everyone else because they want to put people in housing right away. Um, the, the county of the county does the same thing, Kim. It's something that Slavsky put out about two thousand six. Mm -hmm. Is you need to help the fifty most desperate people on Skid Row. Well, you, I mean, there's a benefit to helping the fifty most desperate people. They're the most visibly. Um, troubled, and, and it improves the neighborhood to get people who are in really bad shape off the street. Anyway, what happened with the Cecil, and it's obviously very interesting to us because we're sort of the flashpoint for information about the Cecil when poor um, Canadian tourist Alyssa Lamb disappeared last year and eventually ended up uh, having either died accidentally or been killed. It, it's been found to be an accidental death, but it's still very mysterious, and people have a lot of questions about it. And her body was found in one of the water tanks on the roof of this hotel. Uh, it, it further stigmatized a property that, you know, didn't have much of a reputation in Los Angeles. It's just a giant salesman's hotel that's become a very, very low-income hotel in the last 60 years. But after Alyssa Lamb's body was found, it just became the serial killer hotel. And people look to a lot of the research that we've done on our blogs and our, and our crime bus tours and used a lot of that material in reporting on the Cecil. So now it's a troubled property. There aren't that many people living there. And the notion of adapting it and using it as transitional housing was an interesting idea. But what ended up happening is that I guess Home for Good was working directly with the owner of the property sort of under the radar, and suddenly everything was announced. It wasn't announced publicly, though. It was announced to a sort of small subgroup of downtown power brokers and also, uh, it sounds like, the, the city council and the super supervisors and the homeless services and the Central City Association, which is the big business lobby group, and some of the landlords. Everybody found out about it at the same time, and within a day, they shut it down. Um, I'm only saying that many people found out about it because of a tweet that I got from Reverend Andy Bales, according to the downtown news. It was just Tom Gilmore and the CCA that shut it down. This stuff is not well reported on. Uh, the public never got a chance to know anything about it. If you read the downtown news this week, uh, you'll read an editorial which says, the community spoke out against getting this many homeless people together on Main Street. Well, no, the community didn't know anything about it. The, it was a done deal before anyone who lives downtown, except for a couple of landlords, was aware of it. 
But it's really, really interesting. And as I said, a dedicated LA Times reporter down on Skid Row would probably shine a lot of light. It's really, really hard to keep track on what's going on. There's a lot of people involved. We read a lot of Twitter feeds. We, we read a lot of stuff on Facebook. We still don't know what's going on, and, and that's too bad. And, and we no longer belong to the Los Angeles Athletic Club, so I can't um, sit on an exercise bicycle next to Reverend Andy um, twice a week and catch <laughs> up with him for 20 minutes, which was my principal form of communication with him for years. And uh, that is that is the, la- the last and only time you'll hear, hear me publicly lament no longer belonging to Los Angeles Athletic Club, surrounding my my friendship and and lack of time subsequent to my leaving the Athletic Club with Reverend Andy. Kim. Richard. Okay. La Plaza Cultura. This This is this idea. So this is behind the Brunswick Building. The Brunswick Building, 501 North Main, used to be the Sheriff's Department Crime Lab, one of the crime labs of the Sheriff's Department. That was some time ago. It was some time ago, originally the Brunswick Drug Company in 1894. So it is a 19th century structure. Basically next to the it's, Old Plaza Church it off Olvera Street, it opposite is, Pico House. It You've is seen this building. Abs- exactly, next door. Just one building Two buildings south, there's an annex to the Brunswick building, which is part of it. And the county opened up a museum there about two years ago, and they want to expand the footprint of this museum and cultural center uh, two uh, two lots west, uh, up to Hill Street. There are two parking lots, and the notion is that the county wants to create this green strip, parks, what have you, parks, cultural centers between Union Station and City Hall, which is a a good, correct motivation. And so the draft EIR for this expansion taking over these two um, parking lots is is about to get started. We'll put the link up. Uh, They're looking for feedback. They'll start to have public meetings. They'll start to publish some, t- uh, they'll start to take input, um, publish. I hope they excavate because there's some really interesting stuff that came out of that parking lot right next to the Brunswick when they were working on that building. Yeah, I hope. We met the, uh, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. think there's any more graves, Richard, not not to the west. It's going to be okay. There's just going to be cool old bottles and, and bits of pottery and crockery and things left over from 19th century L.A. It's exciting. Kim, tell us about your novel. Oh, that thing? The Kept Girl, a novel of 1929 Los Angeles, starring the young Raymond Chandler. It, we've been very busily getting it into uh, independent bookshops, which is fun. Now, if you go to thekeptgirl.com and click on the Buy This Book page, you can find out where locally you can pick it up. Of course, you can get it from us at the uh, Lava Sunday Salon or at the Esoteric Bus, but you could also support a local bookstore. It's a fact-based novel about the young Raymond Chandler, the real-life Philip Marlowe, and a cult of... Oh, well-meaning but incredibly dangerous and horrible angel worshippers uh, hanging out in Simi Valley and taking very poor care of the people who believe in them. And it's uh, getting some nice reviews, so check it out. Good job, Kim. Okay, let's just look ahead some upcoming lava salons, uh, lava salons and events. April 27th, next month, April 27th, Sunday, Sunday Lava Salon. It is going to be all about death and depression. Uh, first talk is a presentation on poem noir. Suzanne Lummis, Dale Raoul, Cece Perry. Dale is an actress. Cece and Suzanne are poets. They're all going to be reading to enrich and heighten the sense of what poem noir is. I'm going to leave it at that. Second presentation will be about public mausolea in Southern California a discussion about the architecture of death in Southern California. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be great. Very, Who's very doing that talk? Nathan Marsack, my good friend, is giving that talk, and I'm very excited for Nathan. This is a topic near and dear to his heart. I, I know that a couple of years ago we did a lava field trip to Sunnyside Mausoleum in, in Long Beach, and he was the... Uh, gave a nice little talk and this is this is this is the, the kernel i think that talk was the kernel that got that that got this this bee stuck in his bonnet and he's been 
He's been sending me he's been sending me text messages whenever he goes to another Jewish mausoleum <laughs> in East Los Angeles. So look forward to that. That's that's April. Um we're gonna we're gonna get a couple more events published and next week we'll we'll talk about them. But I just what we do have on the calendars after that is the July Crime Lab. Uh J- July Crime Lab is gonna be about uh spatter. It crash crash and spatter, I believe is the title. We're uh, going to have David Raymond, Professor David Raymond, and Professor Don Johnson talking about bioforensics. So this is going to be they're, they're, they both work together. They both do a lot of work on impact wounds, blunt and sharp um, mito, uh, micro RNA and its presence in blood spatter to help identify. The source of the blood, in other words, oh, no, my wife had a bloody nose, and of course, I'm her husband. I was helping her staunch her her bloody nose, so of course I have blood on the collar of my shirt. And and with these methods that they're developing, they can say, well, actually, that's... um, from her lung tissue. So so you, 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 you probably... You know, you're going to have to come up with a better explanation than she She was a, coughing really yeah, hard, she, yeah. You, you punctured her lung when you stabbed her in the chest. And um, that's why she died, not because she, whatever it is you're claiming. So they're, they're a lot of fun. Get excited. And, and next week we're, we're, uh, we're going to post some more lava events for the summer, and I'm very excited about them. So, so let's get started with these interviews. So, so now is the time when I... I get my, my notes out again, and, and I, I correctly read the credentials of the people that we interview because I, I have to get this right, or it can makes me start all over. So so we're going to interview Anna first, so I'm going to introduce her second. Okay, so let's talk about Anastasia. So Anastasia is a professor of urban planning and an associate dean at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. She is the author of Sidewalks, Conflict and Negotiation Over Public Space, She's she's written a lot of books. Sidewalks is the most relevant to the interview because it's the interview's about sidewalks and positive public space ordinances around sidewalks and and how public policy has been shaped by a lot of different forces and and so that's what we're gonna, we're gonna, uh yeah I'm not going to give away any of her talk but it's 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 a very good one and it and it it's not um it's not it's not sugar coated. She's a she's a straight shooter. She's a right on sister. This is a a, a very, it is a very real talk. All right, second interview. Anna Pahowshek. and Anna, she's the principal planner for the city of Orange, and her job is to steer policy on preservation, make sure that the the city plan, the zoning laws, they're all they're all follow that all the actual permitting and building that goes on in the city is is per these these guidelines. She's gonna talk about the history of preservation in Orange. She's gonna talk about her favorite nineteen late nineteenth century, early twentieth century industrial buildings in the city of Orange, all of which are old packing houses that have been repurposed and it's it's great and 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 now the entire and now Riverside County preservation officers are now and it's this great network so we're we're gonna yeah everyone get excited all right so with that let's take it away with my interview with Anastasia. Anastasia, we're here with you. We're at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA, and I want you to properly introduce yourselves, and then we're going to talk about one of my most favorite, beloved topics in all of my life. Sure. So I'm Anastasia Lucairo Sideris, and I'm a professor of urban planning and urban design at uh, the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. Good. Okay, so we've just, okay, now you're, you're very smart. You know what you're talking about. I want you to explain to us the notion you've been putting together. No, we're not even going to start talking about the toolkit. Um, I want you just to bring us up to speed on your, your goals, which you've had for some time now, about bringing the public realm back to sidewalks. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and once you sort of scope out that problem space, we can get into details like toolkits and 
real case studies, and so let's just take it away. Sure. So I'm particularly interested on in public spaces in the cities because I feel that these are the spaces that really make cities urban, that people of different walks of life can meet, can do things. Uh, and it also goes against some of the trends of in the 20th century that have become very much towards privatization of life, uh, where everyone is in their own private house, private cars, does not interact with um, fellow citizens and fellow human beings. So I feel that the spatial settings where these things can happen are the city's public spaces. And so I'm very much interested in designing and planning for public spaces, be it sidewalks, parks, plazas, that have the element of bringing people together for a variety of social activities. Perfect. I'm going to put on the table because we mentioned this, and this is going to come up maybe later, maybe not this second. The sidewalk is a political realm, mm -hmm. and we'll just we'll leave that on the table, and I think sure. by, by the time we're done talking, we'll come back to that. All right. That was a great summary statement. I want you to start giving us some examples of what you've been doing. For instance, um, uh, there's this book next to us, Reclaiming the Right-of-Way. Do you want to explain? And we'll have a link sure. to this on the podcast page so people can download it. Tell us about this toolkit. Sure. And, and so if you really look into the urban form of the American city, and particularly the American city of the West and Los Angeles is a prime example, you'll see that they really have become dominated by the automobile. The street and the right-of-way for the car is pretty much, in, in some cities, up to one-third of, of, of land. And um, we feel that, I personally feel that this is not the right way of creating public spaces and building um, vibrant cities. And we have an excess of automobile space. At the same time, a lot of the sidewalks are empty because through a series of ordinances, regulations that have happened uh, in the last hundred years, a lot of the social activities that were going on in the sidewalks have disappeared. And I'm talking about, or they have been regulated out. And I'm talking about street vending and public speaking and uh, different celebrations, um, people watching, uh, and, and all these good activities that are no longer there. So the, the effort with the parklets uh, is to kind of reclaim some of the excess space that exists in the streets that is not needed by the automobiles and kind of create spaces for the people. And so uh, parklets are small spaces that used to belong to the automobile that are being reclaimed, converted to places where people can sit, can uh, drink a cup of coffee. In the particular parklets that we have created on Spring Street, they can even use exercise bikes or play football. Uh, and it is a symbolic gesture, uh, and, uh, but it is also a real gesture because you are really taking the street back. The idea would become more powerful if it multiplies, if cities, neighborhoods, communities identify these extra spaces that are not needed by the automobiles, and I can guarantee that there are a lot. There are traffic triangles, empty, vacant uh, lots, and can convert them into parklets. These are temporary conversions, so if the spaces are needed back for other activities, they can be taken back. Uh, these are relatively cheap spaces within the means of different neighborhoods and communities to convert them into parklets. So imagine a future where you have these parklets every few blocks and people can really spend some time talking to others, drinking uh, a soda or even just people watching. I think this would create a much more humane, vibrant city. Perfect. Let's, um, maybe we can just have a quick, I, I, I want to um, get to bids and privatization in a second. But before we do that, maybe we could just, for people that have grown up their whole lives in Los Angeles and don't actually understand what proper positive public space as a European is, maybe you could just walk us through what um, cultures which have existed for uh, 3,000 years do with um, proper public spaces, just so everyone has that in the forefront of our mind. Well, in many parts of the, of the world, um, European cities, Asian cities, Latin American cities, you find more of a fluidity between the private and the public space. So imagine the Parisian cafes that they put 
um, chairs and tables on the sidewalk in, in Athens, where I am a native of Athens, Greece. You find some of these chairs on public squares. Here, um, you find many more fences, walls, blank facades, and you find a much more rigid separation of the private from the public realm. And, you know, by doing so, you take away from the public realm a lot of the activity and the vibrancy. Think, for example, where you have in downtown open spaces. In most cases, you have them in the corporate plazas. These are oftentimes antagonistic to the public sidewalk. They are either underground or overhead. You have to go through stairs or elevators. They have private security. Uh, they have signs that say, you now you're entering into the private realm. So all these create what I call soft control practices that in reality really are quite exclusive tactics that do not allow a good part of um, the citizens uh, of, and I'm using the term citizens, not necessarily who is American and who is not, but as an urban citizen, an urbanite. Uh, and um, a citizen as, as Heraclitus or Plato would have used the term citizen. Sure. Um, a lot of these citizens are excluded from some of these privatized, more corporate spaces. And I believe that our cities would be much more interesting and much more lively if we kind of really create much more of a fluidity, much more of a soft boundary between the private and the public spaces. And we have less privatization and more openness. And so I see these sidewalks as a tremendous resource that cities can, can use to, to make some of these ideas uh, a reality. Perfect. Let's, um, we've talked, just in the few minutes before we started the interview, you, we talked about the regulation of the sidewalk. And I would love it if you could just give us, I, we put on the table when we started, the, the, the sidewalk as a political space. Mm -hmm. If you could just give us a couple of minutes on legislation around mm -hmm. the, the American sidewalk, Absolutely. around sidewalks in Los Angeles. Yes, and, and this legislation starts in the very late 19th century and starts proliferating. We start seeing ordinances for almost every other social use of the sidewalk other than walking. So you start seeing ordinances and guests what it was called sidewalk obstruction. So merchants cannot get a crate with apples on the sidewalk. Um, you cannot put a chair on the sidewalk. Ordinances against street vending, against public speaking. If you need to have a political activity, you have to have a permit. And these intensify. Uh, and so to the point that in the 80s and the 90s, a number of mayors, starting from Mayor Giuliani in New York, they get elected on cleaning the streets and sidewalks from social activities. By doing this, however, you, by taking all these social activities outside the, the, the sidewalks, you create an empty sidewalk uh, because then people do not want to walk. Uh, the sidewalk becomes, there are less eyes on the street the sidewalk may become even a more fearsome space because then fewer people are walking and people don't want to walk because they're afraid that something is going to happen. So it kind of it's a vicious cycle. I'm not arguing necessarily against every regulation that is on the book. Some of them have to do with safety and health and, and you know, some important things. But this overabundance of ordinances and, and regulations have, in my view, stripped the American sidewalk from some of this livability, vibrancy, and interest that the sidewalk has in many other cities and many other parts of the world of the world. Perfect. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna bring this on home. We uh we started this interview with this wonderful general plea for bringing the sidewalk back into the public realm. I want to end this interview with another great abstraction for people to, to chew on as they, as they go through their lives and meditate. I want you just, let's roll up our sleeves. I want you just to talk about the problem in the modern world of anti-loitering, the notion of, of, of really prohibiting people from loitering mm -hmm. in public spaces and how this particular is in effect in, in downtown with the business improvement districts. Yeah, and, and that's also a big issue because um, by prohibiting people from loitering, and it has become to the point that, you know, 
people have to even let's you know I I have visited Paris a number of times and one of the great uh, things that you see often in Paris uh, or again in Greece or in many other cities is street performers, right? And which gather people around them and, you know, they, you have music or you have uh, some tricks going on, magicians and things like that. In most American cities, this would be prohibited or a number of these per- street performers, street vendors, they have to move every few minutes to another place. And that, again, this we have to remember sometimes that these are public spaces, the sidewalks, they are paid for by everyone's taxes. And so what does this say about our democratic society if uh, people cannot gather to enjoy a performance, to enjoy an activity that is happening in the public space of the sidewalk? Again, there are things like in residential districts, you really need to keep the noise down. You need to uh, have uh, some of these activities on specific hours. These are all very um, well-taken types of regulations, but these uh, blanket um, um, banning of every social activity that there is or every what is called... Uh, loitering, I think it does create these empty sidewalks that I was telling you about. Perfect. Okay, you you you, you did it. I love it. You you did it. I want to thank you, and um, I want uh, as uh, you, we well, I want you to come back because I want to talk at some point about your study just mm-hmm. on the string street, street okay. parlors, but but later. And I want to thank you. Thank you as well. Hi, my name is Philip Mershon. I'm here in the fabulous Victor's Restaurant, Hollywood, California, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine. Anna, Anna, I'm here with you. We're here in the uh, community development Department at the City of Orange, and I want you to properly introduce yourself. I am Anna Pahoshek. I am a principal planner here at the City of Orange, and I oversee the city's long-range planning activities. Okay, good. So, and that's so we're here to talk to you about the notion. We're talked about two. We're talk about preservation and Orange, and why Orange is so great on that front. And and the first thing we're going to talk about is the notion of of when preservation became a, a big part of the city of Orange's public policy. And, and by that, I mean you're just going to take us through how Orange's core mile, which is a great historic district, sort of came into being and how it continues and how it really we'll, – we'll, we'll get to bigger questions in the second part. So let's just start with how Orange got to be so great and why you do such a good job of keeping it great. Okay. Well, our historic core in Orange is one and a half square miles, and that one and a half square miles represents the original settlement area of the community. And over the course of time, as other parts of Orange County started to develop and other older communities in Orange County decided they wanted to redevelop their downtown areas to compete with some of the newer developing areas in the southern part of the county, for instance, Irvine, Mission Viejo, Laguna Niguel, a number of the historic downtowns of Orange County were lost along the way. Um, Orange was not as aggressive on the redevelopment front and remained somewhat of a sleepy, overlooked community, which... Perhaps some may have said at the time it was unfortunate that we didn't experience redevelopment and all the economic interest that the other communities were experiencing at the time. But in hindsight, it really served us well and laid the groundwork for what has become repeatedly voted as one of Orange County's best downtowns and uh, maintains a very strong link to the historic agricultural past of the community. In the 1970s, early 1980s, there got to be um, a little bit of the more contemporary development creeping into our historic core. 
and um, the catalyst, I would say, for the public to demand some sort of historic preservation program from the city were some activities the city actually took. Uh, they, we had a historic Carnegie Library that was torn down, and a new library was built uh, kind of on the same site, but there was interface with the historic neighborhood, and the city had an interest in expanding the property area of the library to create more public parking for the library. In order to do that, there was a need to take some historic properties through eminent domain. The plan was going to be to tear those houses down and build parking. So this was a major flashpoint for a lot of residents in Old Town and uh, really served as the genesis of our historic preservation advocacy group, all the grassroots movement. Um, there are some great stories that are told among the residents of the community about uh, the formation of a group that still exists today and is thriving called the Old Town Preservation Association. They, they organized around this parking lot uh, eminent domain activity and started to become involved with city council meetings and um, representing the Old Town perspective. They at one point even managed to identify a member among themselves that uh, ran for city council. There's a great story about this group all pooling their money, scraping together their pennies to buy this gentleman a suit and the proper clothes he needed to be looked at as a legitimate city council person to run. And even though that person didn't win the city council seat, that was part of uh, creating a very active dialogue about the historic district and the community. Uh, the Old Town Preservation Association became more and more organized and uh, developed a greater membership and following and um, ultimately took it upon themselves to put together a National Register nomination for the historic district. Uh, that National Register district was put in place in 1997, but prior to that, actually in 1982, the plaza, which is our downtown core, there's the original town square that was established by Chapman and Glassell. used to be a location for uh, farmers to bring their sheep in for watering and all, all the, it was really the center of town activity um, and ultimately uh, members of the public came together and donated money to build a park in the middle of the plaza and a little business district organized around that plaza. Um, so the original plaza buildings and plaza park itself was actually designated a National Register Historic District in 1982. Then in response to uh, the, the uh, different community activity related to the library parking lot expansion, there was a local historic district created in 1985, and then it wasn't until 1997 that the National Register District um, that captures the larger historic district area was established. You did it? Okay. Take a breath. This is good. Okay. okay. You, good. You deserve a breath. Okay. So. <laughs> Hopefully that comes. No. You, 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 you okay. So, well, we're not done, but this is, this is good. Okay. So, um, I mentioned I wanted to talk about the toolkit that your department uses. So, so I want to. So you've done a wonderful job of giving us the history of this great city. Now, let's just take a couple minutes. You, you're, you, you, as the principal planner, you have a toolkit that is available in the form of sticks and carrots for private citizens to go ahead and preserve buildings. Do you just quickly want to go through the toolkit that that you have? as the planner for the city of Orange and what's available? Sure. Um, unfortunately, we probably have more sticks than carrots, but I think that's maybe the case in <laughs> every city that has a preservation program. Um, our original, well, our, our toolkit consists of policy documents and incentives. Um, the policy documents spring from our general plan, historic preservation element. Our historic preservation element was 
first added to the general plan in 1983. And when we updated our general plan in 2010, that element was, it's an optional element of the general plan, but that element was enhanced, made a little more robust, and renamed the cultural resources and historic preservation element to capture kind of a broader spectrum of the cultural resources of the community. Um, what implements our general plan historic preservation element is our zoning ordinance. <clears throat> the zoning ordinance establishes development standards for properties in Old Town. We actually have, in addition to our standard single-family, multifamily zoned properties in Old Town, uh, we have a special land use designation called Old Town Mixed Use that is meant to capture the more historic development that maybe had ground floor commercial uses and residential uses up above, or we have in some of our, um, on our major commercial streets that were originally developed with historic homes, some of those properties over time converted to commercial uses because the zoning was commercial. So we want to try to encourage the structures themselves to be preserved, but uh, accommodate new types of modern-day uses for those buildings, so some sort of adaptive reuse potential. Um, in addition to just the basic development standards, we have our uh, Old Town design standards, our historic preservation design standards. Those provide finer grain detail and give design directive on how to deal with either rehabilitating a historic structure, doing additions to historic structures. Um, a lot of the activity in our community because many of the houses are smaller houses in the re our residential areas of Old Town uh, and it's an interesting desirable place to, for people to live. There's interest in adding on to those houses so our office looks a lot at additions to residences. Um, in addition to the Old Town design standards we have a process um, for design review for projects that are happening in Old Town. It may be facade modifications, new signage, additions to buildings. In some cases, there are opportunities for infill development, so that may be new development on vacant lots. Those are very limited, but it's still potential. Um, we also have a demolition ordinance that allows us a little more scrutiny of projects that may involve some demolition, and we want to see what the replacement construction is going to be, if there will be loss of material. But we really strongly discourage demolition and another policy tool we look at we look to quite a bit when we are concerned about impacts to historic structures is the California Environmental Quality Act and the potential for either having to prepare an environmental impact report or some some level of environmental review that requires closer scrutiny and special study of the historic structure um, as our one Carrot, juicy carrot, I guess, we have the Mills Act program, which many communities have in California. And what that is is a property tax incentive for uh, property owners who enter into a contract with the city and identify a list of improvements that they want to make to their property, or they're committing to make to their properties over the course of a 10-year contract period. And the concept behind the Mills Act program is there's relief for, um, from your property taxes in exchange for recognizing that it costs more money to maintain a historic structure. And um, we, we offer 10 contracts a year, 10 new contracts a year, and I believe we have about 200 property owners participating in that program. We've got about 1,300 properties that would be eligible to participate in that. We did it. Good. Okay. Take another breath. Now we're at part two. Okay, we're going to get there. Okay. So, you did a very good job. So now we understand we have, a, we have a national register district. We have a municipal historic district. We have all these tools, the policy level, carrots and sticks. I think we understand that you have a really good core 19th century historic district. Let's, let's start to talk about things that are getting tossed about in the larger preservation community about the notion of preservation of the ordinary versus the extraordinary and the larger goals that I think your department has, which is that the ownership 
that the community feels it has over these historic districts. So the whole notion of... So I guess, let me just get you started. Take a single house in your historic district. Perhaps it's not a gem, but in the context that you've created, it's important. So would you just bring us bring us around to the notion of of this this historic context and the ordinary and how a collection of these ordinary things really gives the community this this sense of ownership and 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 pride and preservation sure well our historic district while we do have certain key gem properties some some of which are individually listed on the national register or eligible for listing on the national register what is most significant about our historic district is the high level of integrity that is still maintained in this larger collection of relatively modest residential structures and our commercial our commercial core again the buildings are kind of a t- typical um, 19th century 20th century um, commercial building stock but it is also intact and maintains such a high level of integrity that what's perhaps more important than a lot of the individually significant properties is just the way the district holds together as a collection of buildings. And I think that's what people really identify with the pristine character and the pristineness of the historic feeling that is associated with our um, district. There's such a strong sense of identity in this community. The people who live here very strongly relate to living here. They're very proud of living here. They feel a very strong sense of stewardship uh, related to protecting this larger collection. And everyone loves their individual house. There, There are certainly special things about houses that may be more typical in the larger scheme of the historic preservation world, um, maybe particular you know, special glass treatment or something like that. But as a whole, this is a community of middle-class residential development built largely in the 1920s, early 1930s. And there is such a strong sense of identity associated with Old Town that it really permeates the larger community, and we've got you know, our one and a half square miles here, but it really represents the larger 32 square miles of land area that we cover. And um, it's known in the region. It's known you know, re- sub-regional in the Orange County area, in the larger region in Southern California, and you know, perhaps beyond that, it's maybe a little lesser known, but we are the largest historic district in California. We're one of the largest west of the Mississippi. So um, people really take great pride in that. And the level of maintenance you see in people's property, the level of engagement the citizens have in protecting the overall quality of the district um, just the eclectic nature of the people that live here, and people don't want to be in a homogenous kind of community. They're here for a reason. Um, even the people who've lived here before this was a historic district, they appreciate the fact that the area has evolved, and and you know it's it, it's meant something to the identity of the area. It's meant something to property values. It's meant something to neighborliness, and so. Um, I think people people have transported themselves back to this sort of Mayberry small town way of living, even though we are right in the midst of you know modern day metropolitan Southern California. So we're a little oasis that uh, has kind of holds it together because of all those values. Perfect. Okay, you're going to bring us home. You're going to tell us two or three buildings. People are already deciding. They've already decided we're coming down. We're going to spend a Sunday afternoon wandering around the plaza in the outline historic district. Throw out two or three buildings you think people should definitely not miss when they come down to walk around. Okay, well, one of those buildings that I think is a must-see just because it's a beautiful little building and then it's also, it means so much in the larger world of the citrus industry and the fact that we all 
enjoy eating our oranges every day, we have the original Sunkist Fruit Exchange. And uh, it's... Inter- inter- intersection? It is at the... Uh, it's at the corner of Glassell and Almond on the northeast corner. And very pristine condition, very much intact, and you can envision everyone gathering there back in the day to see what the going rate was for citrus prices. And um, it's it's definitely a, a beautiful little building, and it's an important part of this whole area's agricultural history. Um, some other personal favorites of mine, there are a couple of buildings off the beaten track. There's one over on uh, South Cypress Street between Chapman and Almond that is an old ice house that used to serve, they used to you know, freeze the ice to pack the citrus in that would be loaded on the trains to ship across the country. That building uh, experienced quite a period of disrepair. It had transitioned into being a tire retreading business and it uh, has a relatively new owner, a number of years in the recent past now, who has brought it back to being a really interesting property that has, she's kept the bone, the historic bones very visible and kept the spaces um, very much intact. You can still see the old huge fan on the interior that used to circulate the air for the ice. And it's been adaptively reused to art studios and office, her architecture office, and there's a residential unit there. And we also have a couple of packing house properties that still remain. Um, one of them is just around the corner from the ice house on Almond at the railroad tracks. And it's uh, we have a development concept and adaptive reuse kind of in the works for that property. Um, it's, it's great because it's really one of the few intact packing houses still left in Orange County. Uh, also this, this little cluster is all along the railroad corridor. Uh, also north of the, just north of the packing house on Cypress Street, just below Chapman, is another packing house. It was the Red Fox Orchards Packing House, I believe is the name. And it's a wooden packing house. The, the packing house on Almond is brick. The one on Cypress is wooden. And it is the home right now of a party props company. But it's got just a really interesting interesting look to it. And you, it, it's a, it harkens back to the day of the hustle bustle of the, um, the agricultural industry. And I think I'm, I have a bias to these kind of buildings. And then the other packing house that I really love. <laughs> okay, you're, every, everyone here is Red Bantam's, you know, the machine age. So you're just keep, everyone's happy. Keep talking. Uh, on the northwest corner of Cypress and Palm. And that property is actually also, it can be visited and interacted with on Saturday mornings. It's the home of our Orange Homegrown Farmer's Market. And uh, it's... It, it was, I believe, the last operating packing house in Orange County until uh, the early 2000s. I think it was even featured on Hillhauser. And um, you can really, it still is very clear that it was a packing house. It still has the Villa Park Orchard sign on it. And um, Chapman University owns that property now. And I think they will be a good steward of it, whatever becomes of it. Um, but those are really my extra favorite properties in, in our historic district just because they do really take you back to the time where we had trains coming down the tracks and people loading produce onto cars heading across the country and really you know, spreading the California sunshine with the rest of the United States. You did it. Perfect. <laughs> you did it. Pat yourself on the back. All right. Um, I want to thank you and... And, and we'll come back and we'll, we'll talk about more buildings. Great. Thank you for your time. I appreciate doing this. My name is Cece Perry, and I'm in Max Bloom's Cafe Noir, and you're listening to You Can't Eat the Sunshine.
And we're done. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast, You Can't Eat the Sunshine, for the week of March 31st, 2014. Our guests this week were Anastasia Lokaitu Sidira. She is a professor of urban planning and a dean at the Luskin School of Public Affairs at UCLA. We also talked with Anna Pahoushek. She is a principal planner for the city of Orange, and she is concerned with preservation, and we like that a lot. We want to hear from you. We we are happy you're listening. We want you to continue to listen. And Kim, if people want to give us feedback, like on the iTunes page, what can they do? Well, if they want to give us feedback on the iTunes page, they can go to the iTunes page and rate the show. We appreciate it if you do that. It helps more people find the podcast. You can also send us an email. You can't eat the sunshine at gmail.com or through the contact link at www.esoteric.com. You could also come on an esoteric bus adventure or come see us at one of the lava events hosted by Richard or myself. We're always happy to hear from podcast listeners, so don't be a stranger. All right, Coop, I'm going to I'm going to take the we got we got seven tours coming up. I'm going to take the first four, you're going to take the last three. I think you can do it okay. in 14 seconds. I Go. I can't, no? but okay. Okay, this, this coming Saturday is the real Black Dahlia. Okay, this is a tour about Elizabeth Short, whose unsolved murder still resonates today in Los Angeles. It's not a tour about who did it, but who she was. It is a tour not about who, how they're going to solve the murder, because it's been cold 60-plus years, but, but why you should care about her murder. And a lot of the reasons you should care have little to do with who she was, though of course who she was is a big part of the tour, but there there's some unexpected reasons for a lot of people as to why you should care. So that's that's the fifth. We are off for a couple of weeks. We um I'm gonna be at the You're LA gonna be at the LA Festival, Festival of Books. Books on yeah. Sunday. Stay so tuned we, for details yeah, on that. We're gonna okay. So a lot we we got we got we got other things going on in our lives for a little bit. Also David Smay, we rescheduled the Waits tour. For July, so so we we have a couple weeks off in April. We'll be back on the bus though. April twenty sixth. That's my Jamie Kane Birth of Noir tour. This is a tour about Jamie Kane, double indemnity, Mildred Pierce, postman, always rings twice. His career as a writer and a screenwriter in Los Angeles. His work with Chandler, Billy Wilder, it's all there. Birth of Noir, it's fantastic. Hollywood, Glendale, Skid Row. End up at the King Eddie Saloon for drinks. Next weekend, May 3rd, Blood and Dumplings. Kim, that is your San Gabriel Valley crime tour that involves a dumpling stop in a park filled with concrete, ferro-concrete sea monsters. It is, uh, I, I like to describe it as the tour about crazy mothers in San Gabriel Valley. Mother as in, not your mother, but he's a mother. Uh, it's it's great. A lot of a lot of unhinged incidents. Uh, a lot of uh, uh, the uh, the the. It's not the Nazi. It's not the neo-Nazi party. I'm sorry. It's the American Nazi party. The yeah. one. The ones that had a schism over whether they were hip enough for the hippies. Right. It's a pretty daffy story, and of course, somebody ends up dead. Right. Okay. So that's that's the third, and the seventeenth. Seventeenth of May. Little break again. Seventeenth of May, Saturday is my Raymond Chandler tour. So, so Kim, you just wrote a novel about Raymond Chandler, so that's probably going to tie in a little bit. To my, that has some bearing on my tour. My, we just we just had dinner with Sybil Davis, who who Sybil and her mom are mentioned at the end of this tour because, of course, Raymond Chandler basically they basically uh, uh, adopt is the bad word, but. Uh, Sybil's mom was, was Chandler's secretary at the end of his life, and, and he very much became a member of the family. And uh, this still really resonates for Sybil today. And the end of Chandler's life is, of course, the last 20 minutes of this tour, so it's uh, no, no small part of, of this tour and of Sybil's experiences with Ray really playing to this tour. So get, get, get on the bus. It's going to be a lot of fun. Kim, you got, you got three tours taken on home. Oh, yeah, I can take it on home. Then we're at the end of May. It's May 31st. 31st, 31st even, and that's Eastside Babylon, one of my most unhinged crime bus tours, uh, centered around the story of the radio shop murders over in East L.A., and that is a grim and weird and un- unaccountable story of, of a murderer who just did everything wrong, probably because he was hopped out on his, out of his brains on coffee, lack of sleep, and uh, a deep and abiding mental illness. Just some 
true weirdos on that tour. Of course, we've got the Night Stalker. We go to the street where he was captured by angry East L.A. residents. We go to Evergreen Cemetery, which I'm no longer calling Nevergreen because they are making an effort to water those plots. Evergreen's looking good. We'll go visit the Carnies and their graves there. So that one's a lot of fun. On June 7th, we'll be in downtown L.A. for our Hotel Horrors and Main Street Vice downtown culture, crime, murder, and lore double feature, a tour about troubled souls, B-girls, taxi dancers, beautiful hotel lobbies. There are some really extraordinary early 20th century lobbies that survive, and uh, just everything that's been forgotten about downtown. There's a 19th century lobby in there, too. And one 19th, oh, yeah, I know, yeah, four years, four years before the 20th century, you're right. Then June 14th, we're back in Pasadena with our dear friend Crimebo the Clown for Pasadena Confidential, a tour about incredibly wealthy people behaving as badly as you could possibly imagine. So it's sort of the TMZ of the 19th century, and you'll enjoy that one a lot, I know. So get on the bus. Okay, Kim, good job. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to ask you to continue to listen, and I want to remind you... You can't eat the sunshine. You can't eat the sunshine, but you can make a beeline for the best of the coastline. La 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 la. Skin Row, Solano Canyon, the Doria, and Pico Union, the long lost neighborhood called Hermina between 